0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide
1: headquarters in Boston.
2: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost.
1: It is Thursday, April 11th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, dropped by Stat's Boston office earlier this week for a chat with our editors and reporters. Our Stat colleague, Lev Fasher, will walk us through Azar's comments and
0: what to watch for on the drug pricing policy front. Speaking of the Trump administration, it's forcing a health tech startup to find a new buyer because of national security concerns about its majority owner, which is a Chinese digital health company. We'll break down that story and why some biotech investors are kind of freaking out about its implications.
2: The life sciences industry just helped defeat a legislative effort in California that would have expanded reporting requirements around animal research. We'll talk about why drug companies were worried that the bill could endanger researchers who conduct animal testing.
0: Amgen just won approval for a new osteoporosis drug for postmenopausal women. We'll break down the fascinating scientific backstory behind this new treatment. Gilead Sciences is preparing to
1: lay off about 20% of its sales force. We'll talk about what to make of that news and what it says about the state of the biotech bellwether.
2: But first, a word about a new product from Stat.
1: For more market-moving analysis of the life sciences industry, join Stat Expert Advantage, a conference call subscription service brought to you by Stat and Slingshot Insights. Members can access up to 12 exclusive interviews a year and the full archive of calls between STAT's national biotech team and key opinion leaders. Topics are what's top of mind for executives and investors, from clinical trial results and FDA drug approvals to DC policy issues that will affect the entire healthcare landscape. See more upcoming call topics and become a member today at statnews.com/sea We're taking aim at the global freeloading that forces American consumers to subsidize lower prices in foreign countries through higher prices in our country. Last year, the Trump administration revealed a plan to lower drug prices that was counter to what people might expect from a Republican president.
2: The idea is to base what Medicare pays for certain drugs on how much those drugs cost overseas. It's a concept that has been popular in more liberal circles, but it hasn't exactly caught on among Trump's own party. In January, Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican, described the idea as, quote, foreign countries setting our drug prices, end quote.
1: Azar, who was an executive at Eli Lilly before taking the job at HHS, stopped by STAT's Boston headquarters this week to talk about a range of issues. And joining us now is Lev Fasher, one of STAT's DC correspondents. He was among the reporters and editors putting questions to the secretary. Lev, thanks for joining us.
3: This time from the worldwide headquarters. Thank you, guys.
2: So, Lev, how did Azar describe his efforts to win over Republicans on the International Pricing Index?
3: Yeah. Azar acknowledged that it's been a bit of a lift. And that's something that's really intrigued us in our own reporting, just that here we have a Republican administration rolling out health policy and you have conservative groups like the American Conservative Union or the Chamber of Commerce publicly opposing some of the proposals. Groups like those are often in lockstep with Republican administrations on policy rollouts like these. And the fact that Azar has had to spend time getting people from his own end of the ideological spectrum on board with this idea is pretty telling. And he he was frank about the fact that it's been a a heavy lift and a a burden on his time. Here's Alex Azar on that point.
1: Let me put it this way. I don't think you've seen any Republican leadership or Republican chairman come out firmly against what we're doing, but they're remaining open minded and considering
3: it. So Aaron Mershon, an editor at Stat, who was also in the interview, wanted to know how much work does this actually take? Here's Azar again.
1: I spent a considerable amount of time with Democrats and Republicans explaining our thinking, whether it's on, you know, on the rebate rule or on international pricing or just the general framework we're doing. I've met with Elijah Cummins. I've met with Chairman Pallone, Chairman Neal. You know, I've talked to Leader Hoyer, the speaker. I mean, I'm, so I'm quite ecumenical,
0: so taking Azar at his word that he's been ecumenical when it comes to meeting with members of Congress on this drug pricing plan, Is there any indication that he's actually moving the needle with Republicans? Well, as Azar boasted, most
3: Republicans are still pretty silent on the issue. Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, has repeatedly told reporters, look, I don't want to import foreign price controls. Is there a way for the president to further this proposal but also abiding by the concept of not relying on on foreign price controls. Since that is the idea, that seems like a tough needle to thread. I will say that Senator Rick Scott of Florida introduced a bill recently that has another version of an international price index in it. It somewhat mirrors a Bernie Sanders proposal. So yeah, there are Republicans who have shown an increasing willingness to support this idea. Bill Cassidy from Louisiana would be another one. But I think the Republican mainstream, and as we said, the Chamber of Commerce and other outside groups, are still pretty Iffy about any proposal to rely on essentially European prices to determine US drug payments. So Lev, what, if anything, did Azar say about the Democrats? You know,
1: reining in drug prices is among the few bipartisan ideas in Washington these days.
3: Is there some sort of grand bargain in the works? Right. So we asked the secretary, his top drug pricing advisor, John O'Brien, has been meeting with Wendell Primus, who's a top domestic policy advisor to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And I asked, what are the negotiations like? He gave a very D.C. answer.
1: I'd want to be careful not to be describing things as negotiations. That, I think, conveys a, a, a different tone and tenor to interactions. We are. So, Lev, what
3: exactly does that mean? Well, it means maybe they're not negotiating. They're just negotiating about negotiating, but I think this is Alex Azar trying to, to an extent, downplay expectations for some sort of grand bargain. There is still a lot of room between what the Trump administration wants to do on drug pricing and what progressives want to do on drug pricing, whether there are deals to be struck beyond what's seen as as low-hanging fruit. Bills like the CREATES Act or uh, legislation to ban what are called pay-for-delay deals essentially pretty common sense solutions as Washington views them to promote generic drug competition. It's really hard to say whether there is a bigger piece of legislation that Democrats and Republicans could work on together.
2: So, Love, what did Azar say about his relationship with President Trump? And what his marching orders look like when it comes to drug pricing?
3: Well, two things stood out. One is that Alex Azar and Donald Trump talk on the phone a lot. The second is that, and Azar will say this, Donald Trump is not a traditional Republican, as we've been talking about on the issue of drug pricing. Azar said he is very outcomes driven and that he might be a little less ideological than the Republican administration right now is on other issues. The president wants to lower drug prices. And as we've seen with the International Price Index idea, it doesn't really matter whether the proposals his administration is furthering are traditionally progressive, traditionally conservative, and that is I think one of the bigger things throwing a wrench into health policy in Washington right now as we've been talking about Republicans just don't know what to make of this concept that is similar to a Bernie Sanders bill and nonetheless is being pushed by a Republican administration.
0: So what's the next step for the Trump administration's broader approach to drug policy?
3: Right, so they have kind of two signature policies right now. One is the international price index model we've been talking about so much We're expecting the next step in the process on that within the next couple weeks. We also saw on Monday the comment period close for another signature administration proposal, the idea to ban rebates from drug manufacturers to pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, That's actually a pretty popular proposal among drug makers. Republicans seem okay with it. Democrats despise it. They say it's a huge win for drug companies in a pretty anti-drug company environment. But we are getting to a point where Both of these policies uh, are either going to move or not move in the coming months. But as we heard Azar say on the Congress front, uh, maybe people shouldn't be holding their breaths. Lev, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys.
1: Next up, we're going to talk about some big news that broke the other day that's left biotech investors and companies a bit nervous.
2: So CNBC was first to report that the Trump administration ordered a U.S. company working on health tech to find a new buyer. And that's because of concerns about the national security risk posed by its China-based owner. So the U.S. company involved is Patients Like Me. that's a patient social network, and its majority owner has been for some time, iCarbonX, that's a Chinese digital health company.
0: So Damien, why is this news important? The Trump administration's move comes on the heels of some changes to federal rules back in November that kind of set the stage for some fright. The administration was clearly thinking about China when it changed the rules governing which deals the government get involved with when the investor is a foreign country, And for biotech and health tech, this came as a lot of money was coming from China. And so it kind of led to this anxiety that, you know, if I'm an entrepreneur or if I'm an American investor co-investing with a Chinese company, might I have my business disrupted by this kind of shadowy federal entity? And so the Patients Like Me deal arrives with (laughs) confirmation, basically, that, yeah, maybe you should be scared of that.
2: And we should note, too, that the potential disruption here takes a variety of different forms. The federal interagency group involved here can both block deals that are pending, but they can also force companies to undo investments after the fact.
1: So, Rebecca, what's the deal with this company iCarbonX? Why is the Trump administration concerned about them specifically?
2: Yeah, so iCarbonX is a Chinese company. It's been around for a few years now. It was founded by a Chinese genomics pioneer, and it has backing from the big Chinese tech firm Tencent. There's not a lot of transparency or public information about how they operate. There was a good story in MIT Tech Review a couple years back that I recommend reading for an overview of how this company operates. But the general picture is that they aggregate health data And they're trying to use AI to make recommendations and predictions. Uh, They're pretty deep in mining patient data. And presumably, the potential risks involved there are what caught the Trump administration's eye.
1: And Damien, this isn't the first crackdown by the Trump administration,
0: right? The gay dating app Grindr also caught their attention. That's right. So the same interagency group called CFIUS that can block these deals that we've been talking about took an interest in the apparent company of Grinder uh, that's reporting from NBC News earlier this month. So a Chinese gaming company had taken majority control of Grindr and the government was apparently concerned that they would be exposed to sensitive user data, including HIV status of Grinder users. So there is kind of a connective tissue between the Patients Like Me story and the Grindr story, which is that both seem to center around data security more than, you know, what I think a lot of people feared at first, which was like intellectual property related to new drugs or genome editing. Rather, it seems like much more of an IT issue than an IP issue.
2: Ooh, that's a good contrast. I like that. (laughs) So
1: guys... All this is happening in the backdrop of, you know, a significant increase in the amount of Chinese investment into health sciences, life sciences, particularly here in the United States. So what are you guys hearing about all of this from biotech investors?
2: So one thing to keep in mind is that especially in certain segments of biotech and life sciences Chinese investor money is essential, the flow cannot be cut off. And so it's, I think, a question of dealing with this new reality and thinking through the potential that these sorts of deals might be disrupted, um, that companies are now trying to think through. There's real concern about this. And it's hard to tell sort of how how this regulatory oversight will uh, evolve over time. And I think that uncertainty is something that is worrying a lot of people in biotech.
0: Yeah, I heard the same thing. I mean, I spoke with one executive from a startup that's developing therapeutics. And uh, one thing he said was that there was, you know, maybe a little some manner of selfish relief, that the focus seemed to be more on patient data than on, uh, you know, the the biotech R&D that we had assumed. But also, the other concern is that The rules have been expanded, such as as Rebecca mentioned before, to where they cover not just takeovers, but any investment that results in a minority stake for a foreign investor. And furthermore, whenever that investor learns what the government calls material non-public information, which is basically just anything that is not known to the general public, which in terms of private startups is literally anything. So there's such potential for a broad interpretation of the rule that I think there's still plenty of fear out there. Next up, we're going to talk about animal research and why a legislative push in California sparked concerns about the safety of researchers who run tests on rats and rabbits. Some context here, animal rights activists have long disagreed with the drug industry about
1: the necessity of this type of testing and how much information about that research should be available to the public.
2: The drug industry has maintained that animal testing is essential to generating new medicines, both in generating data and dealing with the FDA. And the industry has balked at sharing certain information about where and by whom animal testing gets conducted. That's in large part out of concern that extremist activists might target animal researchers with violence.
0: So a debate about this has been playing out over the past few weeks in California's state house over a new piece of legislation introduced in the assembly. And that's a bill that would have required more researchers to report more information about the tests they run on animals to the state's public health department. It was introduced by two animal rights groups, and it also had the support of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA. So the life sciences industry rallied hard against this legislation. The
1: California Life Sciences Association, which is the local trade group, led that push, and big national trade groups like Pharma opposed the bill as well. So Rebecca, what were their concerns exactly
0: about the legislation?
2: So they had kind of a twofold argument. One element was more pragmatic, and that was that this change would be costly and duplicative of existing reporting requirements. Then there was the more highly charged side of the argument, which was the concern that information in a proposed database that would be made public as part of this change could leave scientists vulnerable to attack by extremist animal rights activists.
1: And Rebecca, what kind of attacks are we talking about here?
2: Yeah, so this is a really sensitive issue for animal researchers, and particularly here in California, uh, which was the site of a pretty chilling incident uh, about a decade ago.
1: On the weekend, firebomb attacks against UC Santa Cruz researchers. It was Saturday when somebody threw a bomb, a firebomb, at a researcher's home. Then a similar device was tossed into the car of another researcher.
2: In 2008, two scientists at the University of California, Santa Cruz were targeted with firebombs after flyers um, that were sort of fashioned like wanted posters uh, were sort of circulated in the town there with the names and the home addresses of those researchers who run animal tests. And around the same time, researchers at a few other UC campuses were targeted too.
0: So how did this particular issue end up playing out?
2: Yeah. So earlier this week, um, the bill being considered here was actually pulled from consideration because the assemblyman who introduced it deemed that it didn't look likely to have enough support to move forward. And I think part of that can be attributed to the efforts by the life science industry to block the bill from advancing. And I think it's a sign of the leverage that the drug industry has in state houses generally, to be sure. But more than that, I think it's an indication of how seriously drug makers take this issue around the safety of these individual scientists.
1: So this particular piece of legislation in California
0: seems like it's dead, but are there other efforts that we should be watching for? California is a particular hotspot for this kind of thing. You have both the activists there and also lots of research. And the animal rights groups that sponsored this particular legislation have been pushing other bills in recent months as well.
2: And so because of this legislative activity, the Drug industry trade groups are concerned, and they're not letting their guard down on this issue. Earlier this week, I talked to Oliver Recroy, the California Life Science Association's Vice President for State Government Relations. Here's what he had to say.
3: We think this is about public shaming, and we think this is about creating an easy-to-find repository of information so that you can then subsequently do other things. Our
1: opinion on this is that it's a first step towards future legislation that will try to outright ban the use of
3: animal testing in California.
1: So what do we think here? Is this a serious thing the drug industry should be concerned about?
2: Yeah, so I think animal research is not going anywhere. I think there it's clear that this kind of testing is an essential part of the way that the industry does business, even as startups emerge to try to shift reliance on animals away to other new technologies and and new ways of generating evidence. That said, I think the safety issue for animal researchers uh, with legislation like this is something that is going to continue to be kind of top of mind in the industry's lobbying efforts. And I think it's something that isn't going away anytime soon. Next
0: up, we're going to talk about Amgen and the fascinating scientific saga of its newest drug.
2: So every once in a while, there are these sort of scientifically heartwarming stories in biotech when a genetic discovery in the natural world leads researchers down the path to a new drug that can help lots of people.
1: And that's exactly what seemed to be happening to Amgen with a treatment called Romosozumab, uh, which would be sold under the brand name Venity. But the saga didn't play out as tidily as the scientists might have hoped. So, Damien, what happened here?
0: So, yeah, the heartwarming aspect starts about 50 years ago when researchers were studying a group of people who inexplicably had really dense bones that would often keep growing no matter their age, which was dangerous for them. Nearly 30 years after that, scientists figured out an explanation. These people had a single genetic mutation that stopped the production of a protein that works in the body to naturally halt the production of bone when you just don't need anymore. So enter Amgen, a company that's pretty good at blocking proteins, and they figured that if, you know, stopping that protein leads to bone growth in nature for these people with this mutation, then targeting it with an antibody should improve bone density and grow new bone for people with conditions like osteoporosis. And did this approach work? It did. So across two really large trials involving women with postmenopausal osteoporosis, Amgen's drugs significantly reduced the risk of bone breaks compared to placebo or to an older drug. And this was seen as a significant advance in osteoporosis. Existing drugs worked by stopping bone loss or reducing it, but no drug had ever actually spurred bone growth.
2: So that sounds great, but that's not the end of the story, right?
0: Exactly. So in one of those trials, Amgen's drug increased patients' risk of sudden death, heart attack, and stroke. It wasn't a huge number of patients compared to the other arm of the trial, but it was statistically significant. And the flummoxing thing was, no one could really explain why this happened. It didn't seem to have anything to do with how the drug worked, blocking that protein that we talked about earlier. But the lack of clarity around that meant Amgen couldn't really rule anything out. So Damien, fast forwarding to this week, Amgen won FDA approval for that drug, but expectations have changed quite a bit because of the safety issue, right? Exactly. So, because of those cardiac risks, the FDA was only willing to approve the drug for postmenopausal osteoporosis patients who have never had a heart attack or a stroke. And then the label on the drug includes a pretty strong warning about using it for patients who might be at risk for one. And the problem, in, in commercial terms, is that, as you might imagine, postmenopausal women with osteoporosis are often of the age where cardiovascular problems are pretty common. So, the number of people who might actually be eligible for this treatment is likely to be fairly small. And in financial terms, the Wall Street analysts who once thought that this would be a billion dollar therapy now figure that it'll top out at about $200 million a year in sales.
2: So, Damien, is there a broader lesson here?
0: I mean, I think of a a thing that our colleague Matt Herper often says, which is that biology isn't fair. Uh, But I think this falls into the category of reminders that while genetics can be this incredible signpost for drug development, it's not everything. Sometimes there are pitfalls that one can't see coming, even if you've done all of your
2: homework. So Adam, you wrote a story this week about Gilead Sciences preparing to fire 20% of its sales force. So we all know layoffs happen. They're unfortunate. But is there a deeper story here?
1: Right, so Rebecca, like you said, Gilead Sciences is going to be uh, laying off twenty percent of its sales force. Now, these people sell two older medicines that have lost patent protection, and so cheaper, lower-priced generic uh, copies of the drugs are entering the market. And so, the company, as kind of, is it, sort of explaining internally that this is sort of one of those unfortunate but necessary cost-cutting moves.
0: But it feels like, I mean, from reading your reporting, Adam, that this also flex at a macrocosmic story about Gilead as a whole and where it is in 2019 in terms of searching for ways to grow. Yeah, exactly, Damien. So, you know,
1: as we've talked about and written about, you know, Gilead is coming out of kind of several years of declining... Uh, revenue declining earnings and and they were supposed to sort of hit this trough in the end of two thousand and eighteen and start to grow again. but the question is sort of how the company grows what what drugs are going to lead to that growth and so when these layoffs surfaced, the sort of the questions were raised well if you 're laying off these salespeople kind of why are you doing that uh, versus maybe shifting them to other lines of business that could be promising areas of growth for the company. So it sort of just brings up this whole issue that how Gilead is kind of struggling financially to kind of find new ways to
0: grow. This also tracks with with another kind of meta narrative we have on this podcast which is talking about or even sometimes bemoaning how the leading lights of biotech gradually just grow into resembling the pharmaceutical companies that they were supposed to disrupt. So Gilead now they have layoffs. They've entered the club of, you know, the Pfizer's and Merck's of the world in that respect.
1: Yeah, and that's a it's a great point, Damien. And- and, and and you know this is kind of the first large scale layoff at Gilead and and so they sort of are starting to resemble more like kind of the old stodgy pharmaceutical companies, you know, share buybacks, dividends, layoffs due to so sort of generic entries of their drugs. It's not necessarily the club that you want to be in where most people want biotech companies to be developing innovative drugs and growing really fast.
2: And so these layoffs also come very early into the tenure of newly appointed CEO Daniel O'Day. What is the next thing we should be watching for in the O'Day era?
1: Yes. uh, So O'Day started his new job as Gilead CEO at the beginning of March. And we actually haven't heard from him publicly. The company is having their first quarter earnings call in the beginning of May. And so that'll be like the first opportunity where everyone will sort of gather around their phones and dial into the conference call and kind of get a sense of what his vision for Gilead is moving forward. So that will be an important event to look out for
2: that does it for another episode of the read out loud
1: thank you to hyacinth abonado who produced this week's episode
2: matthew orr and Alyssa ambrose are our senior producers and rick burke is our executive producer
0: and a reminder that we'd love to hear from you tell us what you liked about this week's episode or even what you didn't like and you can do that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com
2: And if you like what we do, please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen to your podcasts.
1: See you next week.